Our first speaker tonight, I'm excited about um, introducing is Candace Jackson. Um, she's going to encourage us with the law and share her insight on litigation. She's going to explain how the law does protect fair competition and equal representation for female athletes. We just have to be willing to hold people accountable. I'll share a quick story before we let her talk. So just a few weeks ago, several sports advocates were on a phone call, and it was shared that at a high-level meeting amongst governing bodies that the reason these rules are in place to include male athletes in women's sports is because the sports organizations are afraid of getting sued by the males who want to participate. But, quote, the women won't sue. The truth is, most of us didn't realize in this day and age that we would need to. We expected that governing bodies recognized us as valuable. We'd already fought this battle, and they recognized that we're deserving of fair treatment. We also expected that the law would protect us. It appears that we need to find our voices again and make sure we aren't relegated to the sidelines or that our sports aren't discounted to participation categories without rules in place to protect their integrity. Tonight, we have Candace to talk to us about these legal issues and how governing bodies in sport and legislature are exposing themselves to cases of discrimination against women and girls. So Candace is a partner with the law firm Jackson Bone, launched in 2022 to fight for the sex-based rights of women and girls. Candace served as the head of the Office for Civil Rights and Deputy General Counsel in the U.S. Department of Education from 2017 to 2021, where she spearheaded the nation's first Title IX regulations addressing campus sexual harassment and assault. So thank you, Candace. Please take it away. Uh, thank you so much for having me here tonight. Um, I, I thought I would start with some perspectives that I gained throughout my, my four years serving in the education department and working so, so much on uh, Title IX uh, laws and regulations and policies. Title IX was definitely at the center of controversy and attention throughout the Trump administration, but, but not really in the context of women's sports, at least not until about the last year of the administration. Um, the, the first several years, we were focusing on, on the, the first um, binding legal regulations, spelling out how schools and colleges and universities need to handle and respond to and, and prevent sexual assault and, and harassment on campuses. So we were grappling with tough questions like where's the line between a student or teacher's freedom of speech and offensive statements that can be punished as harassment um, or when somebody's accused of sexual harassment or assault, uh, what kind of procedures ensure a, a fair and, and accurate uh, decision and determination about, about guilt or innocence? How can we improve reporting of sexual harassment and assault and require schools to uh, reach out and offer supportive measures to, to anybody who, who's been reported as being a victim so that uh, Larry Nassar type situations don't, don't recur? So those are the kind of things that, that, we, were, that we were dealing with. But, but as we worked through developing those kinds of rules, we were working off a, a fundamental premise that seemed obvious and, and unassailable, right? We, we all know who men are and, and who women are and that there are differences between men and women. I mean, after all, the only reason that we had data showing the extent to which women, for instance, are disproportionately victimized by sexual assault in schools and colleges is that 
data collected over time is disaggregated first and foremost by sex, not by personal identity, not by spiritual belief, by sex. So we worked out those regulations and, and then the Supreme Court threw an unexpected wrench into the, the Title IX legal landscape um, in a decision that wasn't about Title IX, but was about a law that uses similar language to Title IX in the, in the context of uh, workplaces. Uh, uh, Title VII of the 1964 Civil Rights Act says that there can't be um, discrimination uh, because of sex in, in the workplace. So in June of 2020, just uh, a few weeks after our new Title IX regulations had been finalized and released, the Supreme Court decided the Bostock case. And so for anyone not familiar with the case, the basic takeaway is that our Supreme Court ruled that uh, that, that that employment federal civil rights law prohibiting sex discrimination also applies to discrimination because of an employee's homosexual status or transgender status. Uh, didn't define those terms, by the way. Uh, no, no doubt that the Bostock case did women no favors uh, by expanding sex discrimination law into the territory of things that at most can be considered sex-related characteristics or things, sexual orientation, whatever gender identity is, nobody defines it, including the Supreme Court. The Supreme Court's rationale, in my view, was facile at best. Uh, Justice Gorsuch took the, the lead and wrote the opinion, um, reasoning that, well, an employer can't base a hiring or firing decision on an employee's homosexuality or transgender status without first taking into account the employee's sex. You have to know their sex in order to know their sexual orientation. You have to know their sex in order to know that they're um, claiming a, a transgender status. So based on, on that simplistic reasoning, um, you know, 50 years uh, plus of um, employment anti-discrimination laws existing to protect women, uh, all of a sudden we're thrown into the realm of apparently existing all this time to also protect men who want to be treated as women at work. If the Bostock decision was truly confined to hiring and firing decisions uh, based solely on an employee's status, um, women's rights might've been un unaffected, but the Supreme Court didn't bother to specify that discrimination in hiring and firing is very different than just simple things like factually recording an employee's sex for, for data purposes or providing sex-separated facilities or services as an employer. They didn't address that at all. So immediately the gender identity activists began using the Bostock case to argue that it's illegal discrimination to ever acknowledge sex or to ever provide spaces or services separately to the two sexes. Um, and, and right away, uh, activists were beginning to be pretty successful persuading federal judges that Bostock needs to apply uh, not, not just to employment, but also in the education realm under Title IX. Title IX, of course, for all of its 50-year history, has expressly allowed schools to provide certain things separated based on sex. Uh, intimate facilities like bathrooms and locker rooms are specifically in the original 1970s uh, Title IX regulations. Uh, providing single-sex housing and dormitories, are it, it's been in there all this time. You can do that as a, a school or university. Athletics has been in there all this time. 
that schools can provide sex separated uh, athletic um, um, categories um, based on sex, and in fact, may need to do so if that's what's required to, to end up providing equal opportunities to each sex. So by, by late summer 2020, inside the education department, we, we were playing catch up. We were realizing that, that very, very quickly we were losing legal momentum for protecting uh, equal athletic opportunities for girls and women uh, because of the way that the Bostock decision was being thrown around and, and expanded right away. We took as much action as we could uh, in those last few months, um, but everything done was, was uh, reversed and undone on day one of the Biden administration through uh, new executive orders and rescissions of uh, enforcement actions where we had declared uh, schools to be in violation of girls' rights under Title IX by having uh, essentially mixed sex teams, all just kind of swept aside and, and reversed almost from day one. So that's where, that's where we stand now with the education department um, claiming that, that Title IX now means that, that all educational institutions need to replace sex with gender identity. Um, that is obviously setting a, a tone outside the educational environment. And if, if nothing else, greasing the wheels for the, the, the continuation of sports uh, governing bodies to continue on the path they had been on since 2015-ish of issuing uh, policy after policy in the direction of so-called inclusion. Um, states, of course, you know, in 2021, 2022, you know, really started fighting back. Many started passing state laws trying to protect women's sports. Nearly all of those laws are tangled up in active litigation. And that's how we ended up with Americans walk, watching on in, you know, some degree of shock as, uh, you know, male swimmer, Leah Thomas, uh, dominated what used to be women's competitions. So over the last two years, and as part of launching a law firm dedicated to restoring and advancing sex-based rights for, for girls and women, I, I've tried to think a lot about how we got here and and how, how where we go from here. It, it is astounding that the momentum seems to so quickly have, have um, um, gathered up on the side of those who deny the reality of sex, deny that male and female are fixed or objective categories, deny that girls and women deserve our own sports and our own intimate spaces and services for basic fairness, for physical safety, for dignity, for privacy. Um, and and it, it's got to be tempting sometimes, right, to, to step back and look at the, the state of things and think, is it is it game over for women's sports in, in the U.S. or across the world even? Did we have our day in the sun for a few decades and now we just resign ourselves and our daughters and granddaughters to sliding back into the competitive shadows? No, <laughs> that, that's, that's the short answer. No, no way. We, we haven't even started to fight back against this yet. Legal challenges have so far been few and far between, um, not only in the US, but worldwide. Um, there, there are lots of reasons for that, especially in sports. It, it, it feels tremendously unjust to put the to put any kind of burden on girls and young women who are just trying to establish themselves and 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 their careers and 
their futures to ask them to step into to what has astoundingly become a controversy like this. Um, so there are lots of reasons why legal challenges have been a little slow off the ground. Um, but here's here's where we're starting at. It's going to sound a little daunting, but I promise I'm going to leave you with optimism on how we're carving a path forward to getting women's rights uh, back on track. Sports governing bodies have historically had a, a lot of autonomy and holding them accountable for any manner of unfairnesses or inequities has, has always been an uphill task. Um, it seems like it is like it's happened overnight, uh, even though it's really maybe been over the last handful of years that federal courts have, have seemed to buy into the gender activist claims that sex differentiation is somehow negative and punitive toward anyone who doesn't like the sex category they objectively fit into. Um, gender identity activists spent a decade or more infiltrating gay and lesbian rights organizations and women's rights organizations and thoroughly captured them ide ideologically from the inside, uh, essentially leaving all of our, you know, longstanding, our legacy organizations that stand for, for civil rights or minority rights kind of like zombies where the shell is there, but they aren't, they aren't alive anymore. They aren't, they aren't, they recite their original mission and purpose, but they're actually taking actions contrary to their original purpose. For instance, advancing equality for women. Sex slipped into gender. And so the terminology uh, around that uh, ha has provided a, a, a buffer of uh, obfuscation and confusion that has benefited those who want to um, tear down categories and and um, make def defining anything some some sort of evil of exclusion uh, as opposed to the the rational basis for um, ensuring and measuring equal opportunities among disparate groups of people. Uh, it's very similar and analogous, by the way, to the way that gay or lesbian has, has slid into just being labeled queer. Um, it, it all results in, in very meaningless categories that have no objectivity uh, and elevate inclusion as some kind of primary value uh, at the cost of all other values that, that we've always proceeded based on, like fairness and equal opportunities. So that's where we're starting from. but. But here's where we're going. While we shouldn't have to prove that women deserve equal opportunities to compete and succeed and benefit from sports, or that for that to occur, women actually need female-only categories and spaces and activities, we do have to prove that. And thankfully, there are incredibly bold and rational uh, scientists um, and, and people in the uh, uh, the sports field who have stepped up uh, and are patiently explaining to the world that yes, men and women are different and male competitive advantage is a thing and men don't become women by changing T levels or even surgically altering body parts. When a travesty of justice like the Leah Thomas season can happen without having spontaneously resulted in immediate reversion of policies back to absolute protection of the female category across all sports, it's clear that we're gonna to need to fight this battle for women's rights in, in court, as well as continuing to fight it in 
boardrooms and in the press and political um, venues. But these legal battles haven't, haven't begun in earnest yet. Uh, there are some groundbreaking lawsuits out there, like in Connecticut, challenging sports association policies that decimated women's categories. Uh, and in Idaho, defending the state law that, that aims to preserve female categories. What we need now is um, coordinated tactical actions uh, against sport-specific governing bodies, uh, whether we start with swimming, rowing, track and field, or, or something else. And the NCAA needs to be hauled into court to answer for how its policies are forcing colleges and universities to violate the rights of female athletes. Even though a lot of those member institutions are wholly on board with doing that, it, it still can be said that NCAA is essentially compelling that result. The, the gender activist crowd relies on our sense of fairness, but turns it against us um, and, and uses um, the concept of discrimination in a way that, that really has never been understood or applied before in, in all of civil rights history. Uh, and that is switching from the difference of when we're talking about discrimination that should be illegal, that should be prohibited, that, that is uh, negative and, and should be not allowed, we used to be talking about taking punitive action against somebody because of, of their characteristic, often uh, an immutable characteristic. What the gender crowd has turned the concept of discrimination into now is that not catering to each person's individual feelings or beliefs constitutes discrimination that should be outlawed. It, it's a very different and upside down view of what discrimination prohibited by law has always meant and, and should continue to mean. So we need to force the legal system to confront the inherent illogic of that premise, um, as well as the intrinsic uh, very direct and palpable harms that fall onto women from such a position. So we, we need to ask questions that, um, that get answered uh, in, in, uh, through court actions. Is the NCAA conspiring to deprive girls and women of their civil rights by forcing its member institutions to uh, deny equal opportunities? Um, let's find out. Has USA Swimming already violated the rights of its female membership and subjected some young women to sexual abuse by rules that permit uh, men to invade women's spaces? Let's find out. Is US Safe Sport dropping the ball on its uh, statutory purpose of improving the safety of women in sports? Let's find out. These, these are the kinds of legal actions and claims that need to be strategically advanced at this point. We need to open up the courtroom doors for a wide variety of affected women and girls. There are gonna be some brave young women, <coughs> excuse me, who might choose to sue on their own behalf. There might be um, some charitable organizations with missions specifically to advance rights of girls and women. Uh, who may jump in and sue on those girls' behalf. So the other category is parents. We're looking, we're looking at groups of parents who have daughters at the, the earlier stages of, of recreational and competitive sports um, who want to jump in 
and argue that the risk that institutions and sports associations are placing their daughters at is, is an unacceptable uh, risk. So those kinds of um, class actions are currently under evaluation. The important thing to remember is that all of the legal protections that women have had to fight for over the last 200 years are still in place. We have a lot of laws that already say you can't treat women as less valuable than men. You can't give resources and opportunities to men that get denied to women. We have a lot of laws that already say sexual predators and organizations that cover up for them can be held legally accountable for, for, for causing those harms. So sporting bodies and educational institutions that jump on board uh, and, and latch on to a newfangled reinterpretation of those laws and somehow flip them upside down as though they mean the opposite of what they actually mean, as though they now mean that women only get our own uh, activities and spaces and services as long as men choose not to try to take them over and dominate them. Institutions and associations that rush to, to jump into those brand new interpretations of very longstanding uh, legal interpretations and precedents do so at, at their peril legally because the, the historical trajectory of equality of opportunity and, and uh, equitable distribution of resources has always been, and despite this bump in the road, will continue to be based on material realities, not on subjective feelings. We, we have not lost the legal right to sex-based protections. It, it is just temporarily being hidden behind a, a cloud of phony academic confusion and mystical fads of belief that, that humans can somehow wish away reality. But reality will prevail, truth will out, fairness will win, and any organization or institution that, that thinks that women are not going to get loud and litigious over the loss of women's sports is, is making a grave tactical error. So all of these legal avenues are in active discussion and, and planning. It is going to require the commitment and dedication of a lot of lawyers, a lot of girls and women of the younger generation, and that's a lot to ask of them, of a lot of women of our more senior generations, and the focused attention and financial resources of organizations who do still know who women are. But we are going to prevail, partly because the, the notion that a personal feeling or identity creates or changes material reality it is too fantastical to remain in vogue forever, partly because American law and justice has a long and deep history of commitment to rationality and fairness. Um, and, and partly because women are not gonna give up. We're not gonna shut up and we're, we're not gonna take a back seat. So that is um, 
that that is the the legal landscape in in a nutshell that I that I wanted to share with you all tonight. And I am uh, curious to see if there are uh, questions or um, you know follow ups on that. Candice, that was excellent. I see um, there was, did, do you see the chat where someone was asking for a clarification on the Biden executive order? Do you have any information on that? Clarification on the, okay. Uh, well, the, 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 the thumbs up updates on that is that the executive orders and the written policy documents that, that flowed from those initial executive orders were challenged in court by a group of 20 states, state attorney generals uh, banded together and, and filed a lawsuit um, against those executive orders and those, those policies reinterpreting Title IX and Title VII uh, on the employment side. Um, and just, we're already in November. Okay, I was gonna say last month, just um, two months ago, um, uh, the federal court in uh, where that lawsuit is pending in Tennessee issued uh, a decision that um, halts enforcement by the Biden administration of, of those executive orders and those policies. That is a huge win because that that uh, federal district court in Tennessee um, looked carefully at the Bostock decision and and completely uh, dragged the education department over the coals for overstepping and overreaching what that Bostock decision does or doesn't have to say about sex separation under Title IX. So it was yeah. it, it was a victory. Now that was for the day one rewrite, right? I That's separate from the Title IX executive order, correct? But I, oh, okay. I heard so, maybe you can clarify yeah. that those are going to link together in that court case. So can you help us with that? Yeah, that court case is only about the initial day one executive orders and policy documents about six months after that said, um, here's our new interpretation of Title IX. Title IX really applies to gender identity. Um, sex is kind of still there, but, but really it's all about gender identity. Maybe in part knowing that they were in some legal risk for, for making that huge of a reinterpretation of, of a sex discrimination law just through written policy, the Biden administration this year released proposed regulations. Now, if they, if they passed their regulations, they would be aiming to um, at least have gone through the appropriate procedure, put it out, you know, notice to the public, receive public comments, then make, then make your, your regulations final. They are in the, in the process of doing that but the thing is that 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 Tennessee lawsuit where the judge said Bostock doesn't apply like you think it does, um, you, you can't you can't do this. There's a lot of good reason to think that even if the Biden administration goes forward and finalizes its proposed um, regulations under under Title IX and and would would be trying to formally write into the regulations that Title IX covers gender identity now. Um, and, and that schools have to allow participation based on gender identity. Um, there's a lot of good reason to think that, um, that 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 could be challenged as something that, you know what, at the end of the day, only Congress could do that. The education department on its own, it's kind of overstepping uh, for, for the agency to, to choose to reinterpret the, the Title IX statute like that. 
So those two cases have to be or will stay separate. You like the case they are, yeah, they are separate because one is a lawsuit that it, the the one in Tennessee is a lawsuit that now says Biden administration you can't enforce your policies that you just wrote, and it'll have to be a new legal action that challenges any kind of regulation that that the Biden administration um, comes out with under Title Nine. Yes. Uh, how is the best way to go after the disc golf organization and the cycling organization that has recent male winners? Mm. Yes. So I, the, the formula is going to have to always is going to have to include um, looking at whether there are individuals, individual women who suffered harm. Who are, who are willing to come forward and say, well, now, now I've been injured. Now I've been damaged. Now I've been harmed. You, you know, I, I, you need to compensate me and you need to change your policy going forward so it doesn't happen to other people. So that's the first line of, of inquiry uh, for, for all of these types of situations is looking at um, whether, whether there are people who were directly harmed, not just standing by and not liking what we're seeing, but people who were directly harmed um, and, and lost something because of because of the, the uh, eligibility policy, uh, who are willing to step up and, and, and stew over it. Okay, and then I see one here. How does one navigate a state sports federation like California or CIF that speaks where you have a situation where if you speak out against men in women's sport, mm -hmm. they immediately say you're bullying, this is transphobic, um, and a student or a parent can be punished yep. by the school or face repercussions in the school. How do you handle yep. a situation like that? Okay, that that's that situation too i i think um gives rise to a number of legal claims and so if the answer to to the question are you willing and do you want to do something legally about it is yes there there then there are multiple avenues of of uh things that can be done i think that even though it feels futile right now i think that we need to hammer um the Office for Civil Rights and the Education Department with administrative complaint after complaint after complaint for all of these situations that, that come up, at least force them to, to, have to, to have to grapple with it, to have to deal with it. They're not gonna oh, want wow. to, and they're not gonna wanna come to the correct conclusion about it, but it's good to go ahead and file a complaint. So um, how do you file those complaints? Do organizations have to do that or can individuals do it? Nope, anybody, anybody, well then, and the nice thing about administrative complaints with the office for civil rights like that is is truly anybody can file it it doesn't have to be the person who was injured it can be a concerned organization it can be in an advocacy group it can it can be anybody um so filing those administ administrative complaints is great the other thing to look seriously at is that yes schools are are, are trying to frame these punishments and these retributions as well you're engaging in bullying and you're engaging in harassment uh, based on gender identity or, or whatever but in reality um and, and and this is starting to prevail and win in in court after court that that is a straight up speech violation that is a straight up first amendment violation um the biden administration's title nine uh regulations that they proposed would absolutely set this up 
uh, to, to happen on a regular basis. We're just voicing, expressing, speaking, writing in favor of, of female only uh, sports or, or other activities could, could get you, can get you uh, accused yourself of being a sex-based harasser under Title IX. That needs to get challenged in private litigation in court. Schools that are doing that and taking that view with or without the federal government's um, urging or even requirement need, need to be sued because um, federal courts are starting, starting to pay attention to um, the importance of uh, recognizing that uh, stating things um, and, and expressing uh, viewpoints uh, even in the touchy realm of um, who are men and who are women uh, it is something that just goes straight to the heart of First Amendment protections. Okay, so two questions from that. So would an individual who, um, would that need to be taken, like uh, an individual would need to be public the way, say, the Vermont parents are publicly suing their, and in, to take up the first amendment thing it would they would have to be willing to be public right yeah 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 it's very now the name of a minor child can often be um kept out of the public court record okay um, so there's that level of protection but but generally speaking yeah uh in any kind of litigation is is usually uh open public record Okay, and then the question on the um, complaints you were suggesting, can you please tell us what those are called again? Are the So those are administrative complaints filed uh, with the Office for Civil Rights. It can all be done online these days. And you, you just say, I believe that my school or this school that I'm looking at um, violated Title IX and just fill in their complaint form and that gets it started. So do you, um, you would say violated Title IX, can you also talk about freedom of speech or no? Would you stick with no, Title No, the education, IX? yeah, the education department doesn't, doesn't have a purview over, over freedom of speech, just the issue of Title IX, so sex discrimination. Got it. Yeah. And I want to give um, an earlier question that came up. Um, your, your reflection on how we got here is so helpful. You mentioned brave scientists, and I'm very curious about the contribution from psychologists, clinical mm. psychologists, social psychologists, developmental psychologists on this topic. It feels to me that this is a missing lens and it would focus on the intentions of the trans person while defending women's rights. Um, I, I, think I, I, think I, see, I think I see exactly what's being said. And I, okay. I, I agree very much. I, I think we're, we're seeing this in my, uh, my new law firm has has um, a, a case pending in California. It's been ongoing for over a year to get men out of women's sports. Um, and that is a situation where if we can make it past the initial hurdle of, of you know, the state wanting to just dismiss the whole lawsuit, um, I do see room for psychological experts to come in and talk about the impact on women and the impact on the trans identifying person and and try to help a court and a judge sort through that um okay. so yeah i do i do see a, a role for um the psychology profession to get more and more active in in all of this sex-based um litigation it's a good point great candace are there any other i don't marcia did you see any other questions in here that i missed just one more for you kim okay um 
how are we going to fund these lawsuits? <laughs> we are going to raise money. So we're present, just so you know, um, as far as icons goes, we're looking to be a resource for people to be able to move forward with these lawsuits. And we are looking forward to working with Candace and other lawyers to start holding um, governing sports and different bodies accountable. So fundraising, we're waiting still for the federal government to give us our 501c3 official documentation. But in the meantime, we are um, able to, we have our status, we have our EIN number, but we're waiting for the official before we go full bore um, online and starting to raise money much more publicly. We are um, raising right now though, so please do contribute if you're interested, um, because as soon as we have the funds, we can get going. Um, I'll just can I can I can I add um please when there when in for situations where there are individual claims going on maybe related like like the free speech claims uh for instance if there is a strong basis for a private title nine lawsuit saying you discriminated against me based on my sex uh hey you also you know violated my first amendment rights those kinds of individual actions um Often you can find a lawyer to take them on contingency. Might be a little harder right now these days on this issue, but that's but that's part of why lawyers like uh, Lauren and I jumped into, you know, to dedicate a, a firm to do this because um, th there's no reason why why those kinds of suits can't operate on a, a straight up percentage share contingency arrangement is what it's called. So people don't have to come up with their own set of you know, six figures just to just to sue their school when they've been unfairly deprived of their constitutional rights or Title IX rights. For sure. Wonderful. Fabulous. Thank you, Candace. This has been great. <laughs>